calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren, and this week we have a really great episode for you. The big picture is fixed income, but as you'll hear, there's so much more to the conversation. My guest is Daniela Mardarovic. She's a CFA charter holder and co-head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income at Macquarie Asset Management. We talk about something called mutant capitalism. Now, don't worry, she explains what the term means and what the long-term ramifications are. We also discuss the importance of standing against the tide when it comes to investing. I played devil's advocate and asked her, why buy bonds when yields are so low? That question, by the way, is the one question she's been asked the most times over her two-decade career in the bond market. So let's jump right in. Please enjoy my conversation with Daniela Mardarovic. Daniela, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on today. It's great to be here, uh, Lauren. So one of the things I love about hosting a podcast is that I get to hear people's stories, sort of like where it all began, how they ended up, uh, sort of where they ended up, um, what we'll call, I guess, the investing origin story. And you have a really interesting story. So I'd love to hear how you sort of made that journey from Moldova to the bond markets. So it's interesting. I, I get to actually say I was born in the USSR. Uh, the <laughs> Moldova, I'm Romanian ethnically, uh, but Moldova was, was one of the USSR republics. And I was fortunate enough to be born in, in a family where my parents thought their daughters could do anything, despite the fact that, you know, they were born in villages. Um, and during a time that really defined people's thinking about life in general and how they pursued possibility. Because as USSR was sort of going through its death knells, uh, my family was part of the uprising against the USSR. So we're very much sort of taught to question authority, to not take anything for granted. Um, and through the years, as you know, I became an adult before I, uh, I came to the United States and my first job out of college was actually at the Chicago Board of Trade, which was the quintessence of it is what it is. You either have a view that validates that that's validated by the market or not. And the ability to question authority and being comfortable standing against the tide became defining in how I thought about markets and, and sort of where my perspective on risk-taking um, ended up being. So it's, it's remarkable how much of, of the heuristics that we develop as investors have been created early on. Absolutely. And, and those are fascinating themes. I think later I'd love to sort of talk a bit more about those. One thing I'm sort of curious about is what made you fall in love with the markets? Everything. I think I, I often laugh because I've, I've had the pleasure of explaining portfolio management to uh, seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds over the years for, uh, for career days. 
portfolio management is a lot like if you had a mind that could not settle down anywhere properly and it was constantly ping-ponging everywhere, but at the same time you liked the idea of having your hypotheses tested, a very sort of clean-cut process of what is success? How do you define that? It was always very objective in nature. So I think my mind uh, responded very well to the nature of the markets. And that's, as, as I traded my first bond at the time, that was the rest of it. I was in love. So I'm very curious, you've been in the market for, I guess, 20 years or so. So a personal question, what was the experience like for you over the past year? I mean, markets have been up, down, every, everywhere. What was it like? That's a very interesting question because it has somewhat different answers between, uh, depending on the perspective. From a pure investment perspective for Macquarie Fixed Income, we had a fantastic year in the sense that it was precisely the type of environment that our philosophy does particularly well in, right? So our idea had always been, look, when, when liquidity is ample, and that remember at the beginning of 2020, liquidity was ample, and compensation for, for risk was poor, that's precisely the time to take a step back, build a liquid capital reserve with a pure expectation that at some point something eventually breaks. So you don't, the, 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 there's no requirement that you know exactly the path, but just understanding the idea that markets tend to overdo it uh, in the extremes, right? So because of that, as you might imagine, and, and our comfort stand against, standing against the tide, March and early summer of 2020 were remarkable periods of investment creativity and, you know, interacting with the research team. And we're talking about airlines, who survives, who doesn't, why. Um, that was phenomenal, right? That was that feeds the, the creative mind and the intellectual curiosity of the entire team and then also builds camaraderie. But then um, on a sort of human and personal level, that's where it gets tough because the best thing about the GFC, for example, as I think back, and, and look, I, I, I need to acknowledge the human suffering in the, in the background is uh, significant, but focusing strictly on, on investing, it was that you go through a crisis together as a team on a trading desk with the adrenaline associated with it. It builds um, a remarkable sense of togetherness. That's what makes this business, business really neat in that sense. But, and even with clients, that, that, that's the other aspect of it. You go through this process with your clients. They are just as aware of how, how incredible things are. But, what was different about this process is, as you might imagine, I like to talk with my hands and everything else that I have. Uh, interacting with people is a requirement for, sort of for my well-being. And being sort of behind screens really tempered with that process. So on a personal level, and I, I do want to like to talk about this quite a bit, no, mental health hasn't been easy this year. Um, and just as much, I think, as you think about decision-making in general and what makes investing effective? What, what is a process that's effective? Well, investing without debate does not exist. There's no, there's no effective investing without debate. 
And the process, the, the, the problem is that online and on screen, even though one-on-one -on -one we seem to function okay, if you have a group of people trying to have a live debate, that's quite limiting. Yes. Uh, you know, a few moments ago, you talked about sort of markets in the extreme, and I just want to sort of set the context for the audience. You know, we're having this conversation, it's July 20th. Uh, yesterday was uh, one of the worst days uh, in the stock market in many months, and bond yields were also fell to the lowest level in months. I was reading a note, John Authors, who's a columnist at, at Bloomberg, uh, had this note, the good news, if the market is to be believed, is that we can forget about the inflation scare. So I want us to try and take sort of the long, the long view here. Um, the bond market has not been following the script many had expected this summer. What is your view? How should listeners be thinking about events at the moment, but taking the long view? What often happens during periods of inflection like this, or when things don't quite work out as consensus would expect it would happen, is we fall back to our compulsion to create stories. And you can create any story. This is how it works, right? The, market, the markets are incredibly complex systems, and there is a lot of model uncertainty around, okay, what is fair value in rates? Do you know? No, we don't know that with a high degree of certainty. Of course not. So what is, in fact, natural model uncertainty? Humans don't accept that. That's difficult to process. So we need to create stories around that. And I think what we've noticed quite a bit um, after the FOC meeting, in particular in June, right, the great abandoning uh, average inflation targeting meeting, the market processed this or chose to process this as, ah, the old playbook is back. The Fed will be too aggressive. It will stifle inflation. They're afraid of this animal. Um, and in the process, kill the recovery. And that has been sort of the most convenient uh, narrative around what we've seen in the markets. In practice, things are a little both, both simpler and more complicated. Um, on the one hand is, as you think about how quickly interest rates moved from about 50 basis points at the low last year to 1.75% to this year, that, that was without pause. That was incredibly rapid. And equally, it was around a tremendous amount of consensus around that view, right? Most people really did think that inflation was here and recovery would be remarkable. And you had fiscal policy. All the stars were aligning around um, this, this view. And when you have that many people transition to one side of the equation, there aren't many left to sell, right? There, there aren't many people left to sell bonds. So what we, we found was that we needed some rebalancing in the market. You still have the Fed purchasing tremendous amounts of treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities. So naturally, it created a little bit of supply, demand, and imbalance, and, and it's fine. More recently, however, and, and specific to, uh, to this week, you had that backdrop, but now the market is choosing to focus again on the virus. And this, this uh, reaction function is a bit more familiar. We know how it works. It uh, manifested in more obvious ways in, in that equities actually sold off when, when bonds did particularly well and yields declined. We had a little bit of a pause in the risk rally overall. 
So the market is trying to come to terms with the fact that the, vir the virus may well be with us for an extended period of time. Um, I, I, guess, I guess the real conclusion to, to this point is just the realization that this, I used to call it inflation extremism in that uh, it seemed like people wouldn't, wouldn't accept that anything nuanced was possible. You either believed disinflation was going to destroy the world or you believed you know, inflation would destroy bond markets and, you know, there the, the would be no purpose for bonds. And, you know, the, the, the reality is clearly here in the middle where, yeah, cyclical impulse is strong, but the underlying secular trends are equally strong. Yes. So when we were speaking off mic just a bit earlier, uh, you sort of mentioned a term I'd never heard before. Uh, mutant capitalism, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a term that you've coined. Um, Tell listeners, what exactly is mutant capitalism and, and why should we be thinking about mutant capitalism? So firstly, it is our attempt at being funny. Uh, <laughs> full acknowledgement, there's no, official, there's no official definition to mutant capitalism. But as we reflected on, um, on, the, on, on the last decade of investing, so especially or specifically post-GFC, as we enter the era of perma-quantitative easing, right? Um, one of the things that became quite evident is the fact that government was now playing a central role in markets. So when you think back and look at J.P. Morgan, the man, not, not the company, back in the day, he would say, well, what's the purpose of, of markets and capitalism? Very simple. Their purpose is to make sure that capital is allocated to its most efficient uses. Yeah, capitalism, easy. Reflecting on the last 10 years, not so much capitalism. That is not quite what we've experienced. So to frame, given the pandemic, to frame sort of this, this new era of investing uh, differently, we decided to call it mutant capitalism because it wants to be capitalism, but in practice doesn't function as such. So from, but more importantly, what, is, what, is, what are the implications of this, this era? Um, there are many folds. For one, we know full well that the markets haven't really been allowed to recalibrate, right? Because uh, the euphemism of global financial conditions, uh, otherwise known as equities are selling off, have, has generally meant that monetary policy for the longest time would come in and save the day through various forms. Or most recently, and this is sort of where this this monster or whatever whatever the current regime has become has taken an entirely different form is fiscal policy has now joined monetary policy as a way to uh, mitigate problems in markets so what that has meant from a practical perspective is as you've had these uh, imbalances built up and as you've had monetary policy uh, band-aid every occurrence of problem or fiscal policy band-aid every occurrence of problem think about ppp and its impact on the economy not everything is as as uh as intended when it comes to these types of solutions it has created an entirely different market and what we've noticed is the in this market uh the speed of reaction has changed it's become much much higher than it's ever been before and we call it the market stuck in permanent fast forward. We've had last year 
an entire pand pandemic, a crisis unseen by modern markets, condensed in less than a, than, than a year. That there's no real explanation for that other than, than this new environment. And the problem is that once you inhabit this reality, the market periodically lets off steam. So dislocations end up happening with a much higher frequency than in the past, which is why from our perspective, as we we're talking about needing to have a liquid capital reserve and how do you approach markets when they are this volatile, when there are multiple derivatives to keep in mind when you interpret data, remember, Good data is good data, unless it's bad data, unless it's good news, unless it's, right? This is the market we're in. And the only way to really navigate these markets is to use agility as the necessary currency to, to capitalize on value. Put differently, in the extremes is where the best value exists. But you have to be able to, to be prepared to have the, the liquid reserve and you have to have the agility, the, the actual speed of deployment in order to, to function and monetize the new regime. So you've talked a bit about sort of, you know, investing in the extremes and also sort of standing against the tide and how, I guess, your childhood sort of impressed upon you those, those sort of, you know, I guess, values or disciplines. Tell me how it is with your team. I, I, I presume that you're spread around the globe. It's been a very sort of funky year work-wise. How do you get your team to also think this way, to sort of take that stand against the tide? So I think what, what, one of the real interesting features around how Macquarie Fixed Income functions is that we are 115 individuals, you know, four uh, four hubs, three different continents, and I tell you this uh, this time around, it certainly has been was very useful to have a uh, an office in Australia, right? It gave that Asian early Asian perspective that we wouldn't have had. But even though it's a large organization, it has always I always laugh. It's operated like a kindergarten class that's gone together through every single class all the way through college. So that personal rapport, as well as a clear understanding of how we operate. Every regime has a mode of, of how, what types of questions we ask. So for example, for us, and that becomes important even if you have disruption in how we can communicate. So for example, it was abundantly clear based on our research into um, uh, market efficiency, that because the best value resides in the extremes and because we look at evidence, both fundamental evidence, but also behavioral evidence to decide uh, where value exists, whether it was our analyst or securitized specialist or you know, EM team, everybody uh, pursued the environment starting in March as an environment of opportunity to add value rather than an, an environment where you cut risk. And that became very important because we were asking the right questions. We weren't asking, what are we selling when everybody else is running for the hills? We were asking, what are we buying? And you know, the type of conversations we had, particularly early on when visibility was very poor, we wanted to focus strictly where we had confidence that the entities could, could get across the bridge, right? 
So as a result, we used to laugh and say, hey, if it requires financial engineering to decide, go to the next bond because the investable universe is 20,000 individual issues in the bond market. So speaking of buying, I'm going to sort of be a bit of a provocateur uh, for a moment. I know that you're a long, long-term believer in bonds. That's what you do. But there are some people out there who are really decidedly um, not anti-bond. They just don't pull any punches when it comes to the, to the, the fixed income market. So, for example, Buffett and his shareholder letter this year was saying bonds are not the place to be these days. Um, Ray Dalio posted something on LinkedIn. He said, why in the world would you own bonds when the bond markets offer ridiculously low yields? So I'm going to put that question to you. Why should investors own bonds? What is the role of fixed income? And how do you add value in this environment? Um in my first reaction, for I do get very defensive about bonds, but uh, <laughs> my first reaction is that my entire 20-year career, um, I've spent answering one question more than, than any other, and that was, why would you possibly buy bonds when yields are so low? Or if you look at history, <laughs> that has been the case for 20 years, and bonds have certainly more than delivered, and more importantly, active fixed income has more than delivered. This is, this is still one component of the market that lends itself to active management. You can actually add value. Um, so just, just noting that, and as an example, in particular, if you, if you look not 20 years back, but you look at the end of 2018, that was very much the conversation. Why should you own bonds if rates are clearly going higher? There was quite a very famous person who was calling for uh, interest rates to get to 5% at the time, very vociferous. Um, it, our uh, flagship fund, I think, for 2019 returned 11%, which, you know, even by equity standards is an entirely uh, uh, acceptable rate of return. And fast forward to the end of 2019, as we all recall, and that environment was actually quite similar to this environment. Uh, the discussion was the same, right? Interest rates were incredibly low. They were just unbelievably low. The compensation for, for risk in credit or securitized was very poor. Why would you possibly own bonds? And come, pandemic comes about, right? And you also remember why treasuries, specifically treasuries, are the only the one safe haven you always would have wanted to own, no matter what's happened, including if you think back when the U.S. was downgraded, what rallied? What was your safe haven when the U.S. was downgraded, when treasuries were downgraded? Treasuries rallied. So the answer to the question of why own bonds, the same reason you did last year and the year before, but bigger picture and, and from a longer term perspective, bonds are a store of value. Bonds are a, a source of liquidity because remember that that entire mutant capitalism story. You want to source even Warren Buffett in 2018, uh, 2008. He did well because he had money to spend. That's all there is to it, and that's what bonds can offer. But I will uh, insert a, a small cautionary note here. One, because of the sort of generalized belief that bonds will will have to go higher for the past decade. What's happened was that uh, bond funds or bond solutions became denatured. So not all bonds are quite what you think they are. 
and investors have gotten into the habit of increasingly investing in very risky bonds that are highly correlated with equities. So when we have, and you know, again, in the spirit of being super silly, but also to the point, we call them baby equities because in the scheme of things, you have not diversified if all the bonds you own are high yield in the end. There's a role for them, but that's not really what the fixed income anchor in the portfolio should be. So that is our big sort of cautionary note is understand what bonds is, understand exactly which element will provide the stability and, and, and access to liquidity. And in the meanwhile, take advantage of all the opportunities that present themselves in an era like this. Great. Well, now it's time for us to get to our, our closing questions. And as I had told you before, we, we, I asked the same three questions to every guest. Um, the first is what we call the ray of sunshine. It, it's a sort of a, a, a leftover from, I guess, early in the pandemic when we're just trying to find something to anchor us to something positive. Um, you spoke about you know, how, how difficult it was from a mental health perspective last year. We've seen lots of changes that have come about as a result of the pandemic. So really the question is just what is one, I guess, long lasting change that you hope will uh, stick around because of the pandemic or as a result from the pandemic? So it's interesting. The temptation is to look at, at so many things we, we've been talking about, like flexible work and so on. In my view, though, as I talk to people, I can't think of a single one who hasn't had that deathbed philosophical moment in their lives last year. It's, it's the question of what matters. Why am I here? If I die tomorrow being faced with mortality, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I've certainly gone through it and I feel like many folks have. What will I have to, what's the legacy for my children? And I think that process, um, in the same way that during the Great War, after the Great Depression, the, a, a lot of people became more frugal. I feel right. like that will be the stamp on our generation, that self-reflection and making sure that what you do matters. So the second question, I used to call it the NASA question because that's actually, actually where I first saw it was on a sort of middle school NASA working question. Um, but I think I should call it like the space tourism question because like the last week we've seen two billionaires go up to space. You know, so Richard Branson last week, today Jeff Bezos. So we'll kind of call it the space tourism question. So you're about to get on a plane. Uh, it won't be the sort of the 10 minute flight a la you know, Jeff Bezos. This is going to be a long space duration flight. Uh, you can take one object with you. What do you take? I, I have to recognize that, the, so, so, so admit that being an astronaut was more part of my realm of possibilities growing up than being a bond manager. This has <laughs> always been part of my, my special dream. Um, I don't think it matters. It's, it's the dream, it's the process, it's the unknown. So to be honest with you, if we have flexibility, if it weren't an object, it would be my kids, my husband, and my sister. <laughs> I would just take them along because it would be such a remarkable experience. But if you couldn't take them, is there something else you'd have to take? It's nothing. That's the idea. It reminds <laughs> me of it's, it's, it's just being there. Just, it just yeah, reminds okay. me of, of the process of when you take pictures, and I have children, right. and God knows I have many pictures. But your experience of 
anything that happens to your children when you take pictures or you're busy with, with any of that changes. I just want to be present. Okay. And I would assume, you know, things like oxygen and, you know, nice. uh, cameras would exist on board. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I certainly hope so. And we'll stick with space for the last question. And this is the, the superpower question. And uh, you have to pick one superpower. It's flight or invisibility. Uh, whichever one you pick, you're the only person in the world that has that superpower. Which one do you pick? But more importantly, what do you do with it? So this one is tricky. It really is complicated because from a pragmatic perspective, one would argue that invisibility has greater applicability, particularly if legality is not an issue. <laughs> However, <laughs> invisibility, even if you leave legality alone, and even if your objective is really to change the world for the better, better invisibility has a deceitfulness to it Mm -hmm. It's just not my cup of tea, so I'm going with flight. Okay, and what are you going to do with it, though? And again, it might be you just want to experience it, like you want to be present in the in the space flight. <laughs> it might be the same. <laughs> but people know that you can do anything. I don't know. <laughs> open open the scope of possibilities. I haven't quite explored this enough. I'll have to take it home for homework. <laughs> okay. Well, Daniela, it's been a lot of fun today. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. It's been lovely. You've been listening to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can do so on our YouTube channel or wherever you listen to the show. That way, you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate a rating and review. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. And a quick reminder... This podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.